Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Once again, um, great to see you. Thanks for being here. Uh, we are beginning to wind down our uh, first ever sermon series as a church, uh, Citizens as Strangers. We've been walking through the book of First Peter together. We just have this week and next remaining. And so I hope and pray that this has been beneficial and helpful for you. I think it's been really important for us as we uh, become established as a church. A lot of the things that Peter has to say, I think, are things that should remain true for as long as the Lord sees fit to allow the King's Church to exist here. And so I hope it's been helpful for you. Uh, We'll have some information on our uh, Advent series coming up here soon and what we're heading into in the spring uh, very, very soon. So you can look for that this week. If you're the kind that likes to check your email, uh, you can check it this week. If not, we'll let you know eventually. Um, But we will inform you what's going on there. Uh, But as we turn our attention to the text this morning, to the uh, the end of chapter 4, uh, I want us just as up front here as an introduction, I want us to begin thinking about the holidays that are rapidly approaching. Like, I don't know about you, but I cannot believe, I literally can't believe that Thanksgiving is a mere, like, four days away. Like, this week is Thanksgiving. That's crazy. Uh, as we approach this time of year, I know for many of you, I know for me, uh, it means that we need to think through a whole realm of things called the family, Right. So as we approach the holidays, many of us are dealing with and making preparations for our families, where we're going to spend all these time, where whose house are we going to, who all is invited, what do we do when we gather, right? Now, whether you have good or bad feelings associated with this, uh, all of us have some distinct family traditions around these holidays, don't we? So maybe some of you, if we just think about Thanksgiving this week, maybe you guys have the, uh, the real stereotypical American family football game Thanksgiving morning. Anybody do that? That's awesome if you do. I applaud you for it. Maybe there's the annual pulling of the, uh, the wishbone. Uh, maybe there's a very specific item at your Thanksgiving dinner table that would be viewed as strange and bizarre by the outside world, but is a staple at your dinner, right? I know for us, uh, we have a strict no Christmas music rule until after Thanksgiving meal. Can we chat for a minute? Like, you guys already have lights up on your houses. Like, you've cut down Christmas trees. It's November 18th. Like, I love Christmas, but can we give Thanksgiving a a little bit of a shot here, right? Um, Maybe there's a particular family movie you always watch this time of year. Uh, Maybe there, this is my favorite, the annual verbal gymnastics of avoiding certain political topics or candidates at your table, right? Because you know that's like launching a grenade into the middle and seeing what happens. Uh, Whatever it might be, though, right, we have all these traditions laden around our holidays. And what these holidays tend to reveal is that most families have developed, often over a long period of time, a set of behaviors, postures, and habits that they practice with one another at these times of year we gather together. And there's something like, there's a particular something that holds that all together, you might not be able to identify what that something is, but there's something running underneath all of those traditions that makes it uniquely yours, makes it uniquely your family's. And I think what we're going to see this morning as we look at chapter 4 in First Peter here is that the same should be true of the family of God. There's a particular something that ought to be uniting us together 
that ought to define our relationship with one another in the church, in the family of God. That there's some sort of habits, there's some sort of postures, there's something unique that ought to be experienced amongst God's people. And even if the holidays are especially hard for you, precisely because of family, I know that's true, right? So even if this week coming up is hard for you, the church is to be a safe haven and a true home in the midst of the brokenness of this world. So as we think about what is that something that holds together the church, know that anybody can get in on that. That's something that Jesus has died to bring us into, and that's for everybody in this room. So I don't know where you're at this morning on the idea of family. I don't know where you're at with the idea of the gospel and Jesus. Uh, But I think what we're going to see this morning is that Peter's going to give us a picture of the family of God that I think we would all desperately want to be a part of. And so this morning, the title of my sermon is Living Together in Light of the End. Living Together in Light of the End. I want to apologize right now. There are no notes on the screens. Pastor Ryan went on vacation before I could finish my sermon. So I don't know whose fault that is. Ryan's not here, so we'll say it's his fault. Um, So you have to listen extra close this morning, but living together in light of the end is where we're headed. Here's the main idea. With the end in mind, we are called to live as a family and to endure through suffering to the glory of God. We, this is what we're headed for this morning, with the end in mind, we are called to live as a family and endure through suffering to the glory of God. So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time, and then we'll jump in and see that this morning. Pray with me. God, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather together as your people, people who have been saved by you, to sing to you, to give our worship to you, to sit under the word of God, to learn from you. And God, we know that even though we do this each and every week, that this habit of showing up, this habit of sitting and hearing from you, is so transformative for us. So may you be big in this time. Jesus, may you be clearly esteemed and seen. Holy Spirit, may you speak through your word to the hearts and the minds and the souls in this room. And may we all leave here encouraged by the family that you've given us in the church and by the hope that we have in the midst of suffering as we look to Jesus in the midst of that. May that be true of us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Two points this morning. First thing we're going to look at is the end time family of God, verses 7 through 11. And secondly, we'll talk about endurance and fiery trials. So the end time family of God and then endurance and fiery trials. So as we look at this picture of the family of God, Peter addresses here in this section how the people of God are to relate to one another within the household of faith. This is a shift, by the way, from the last couple of chapters. The last couple of chapters, he's been talking about how the church is to relate to those outside of the church. And here he shifts back inward. How inside of the body of Christ are we to relate to one another? And if we can imagine just for a moment, if we can put ourselves back in their shoes, you know how critical and crucial these instructions are. We know that the early church here that Peter's writing to, they're facing trials, they're facing facing suffering, they're facing some level of persecution it would have been easier by every earthly metric just to say, you know what, this is not worth it. I'm just going to go back to the way that I used to live. I'm just going to go along with the flow of culture. It had been so easy by every earthly metric to go ahead and do that. So Peter says, you know what, you desperately need this message. 
you need to figure out how to fight together, how to rally around one another in order to endure what's happening all around you and the suffering that you are experiencing. Their commitment to one another was a very serious matter. This was not an optional thing for them. They desperately needed the family of God. But it's very surprising to me where Peter begins his exhortations. Look at verse 7. He begins by saying, the end of all things is at hand. It's an intense starting point. The end of all things is at hand. So before he launches into specific commandments, he reminds them that the end is near. Now, why does he start there and what does he mean by this? Now, I remember when I studied uh, religion at Florida State, uh, long, lots of long stories for a later time, but study religion at Florida State, my professors all argued that the early church and Jesus himself were just wrong about this. They basically said, look, the disciples, the apostles, Jesus himself clearly thought that the end of the world was near at, at their time, that he was going to return very, very quickly, set all things right, and usher in the kingdom of God once and for all. And they argued, look, see, Peter says the end of all things is at hand, but yet here we are 2,000 years later. That's how they basically would argue that. And they would use that as ammunition to say, look, it, the Bible's not reliable. This is not trustworthy. I think there's a better way to read this, however. If we put this in the context of the whole book, here's what I think Peter is getting at when he says the end of all things is at hand. I think he means that the last times have been ushered in or inaugurated because of the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus Christ. Because this book leading up to the New Testament all points forward to that. It all points forward to Jesus. He's the pinnacle of human history when he arrives, and we'll, we'll spend some time really looking at this in our Advent season leading up to Christmas, uh, but everything is pointing to Jesus. He is what has been long promised ever since the Garden of Eden, ever since Genesis 3 in our Bibles. And so now, on the other end of Jesus, in what we might call the church age, the only thing that we are awaiting is King Jesus to return and to restore and to renew all that's gone wrong in this world. And you know what? That could happen anytime. And so when Peter says that the end of all things is at hand, he means that we are just one step closer to Jesus coming back and setting all this right. It doesn't mean necessarily that he's coming tomorrow. could come tomorrow. Obviously, we're 2,000 years removed from this. But Peter's saying that reality, that Jesus is coming back, that our crucified, risen, ascended Savior is going to return to earth to set all things right that have gone wrong, that that means we're in the last days. That we are in the last days, we will continue to be in the last days until he returns. Now, I do think it is worth asking the question, why the delay? I mean, this is almost 2,000 years ago, right? By any metric, that's a long time ago. So why the delay? What's going on here? Well, Peter actually helps us with this in his second letter. I think it's entirely possible that Peter was hearing they might be misunderstanding what he said here in chapter 4 for us. Here's what he says in chapter 3 of Second Peter, verses 8 and 9. He says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Listen to this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know why Jesus has tarried? You know why he has delayed? 
so that more and more people might reach repentance, that more and more people might be brought into the household of God, that more and more people might see that he really is it. He is King Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, one of the reasons he hasn't returned is so that you will know him. That's his posture towards us. He is on a rescue mission to seek and save the lost, and that's why he's delayed his coming. He's delayed his coming that more and more might have their lives changed. They might be brought back to the Father. That's why we have planted this church to firmly enter into that space and to declare and to display and to make much of who Jesus is, to simply point to him as our only hope. So Peter reminds the family of God, the end of all things is at hand. And as you focus your attention on the end of the story, this ought to dictate and influence the here and now. So Peter's sort of juxtapositioning here. He's saying, hey, the end is at hand, so here's how you live right now. So as we think ahead to what's coming, he gives us four things that ought to mark the family of God. You ready? Number one, he says clear thinking. Secondly, he says love. Third, hospitality. And fourth, service. Clear thinking, love, hospitality, and service. Let's see these in the text and think through how we might apply them. Look at verse 7 once again. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. In light of the end, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded. These are virtually synonyms in the original language. They're probably meant to be taken together. By the way, this word self-controlled, one of the meanings of it literally is to think with sanity, to be sane, which I think is really important, right? Because often we, with good reason, are very skeptical of people who are always talking about the end times, aren't we? Like, we're skeptical of that because how do these people tend to act, right? They tend to act the exactly opposite of what Peter's saying here. I mean, you guys have seen the show Doomsday Preppers, right? Even if you haven't, there's a whole show that tracks people who are preparing themselves for doomsday, right? They're always focused on the end, and we wouldn't describe that segment of the population as, like, the most, like, stable, right? And so this thing exists, and as highly entertaining as that show can be, we don't go looking, like, for advice on how to live right now by the people who are, like, thinking the end of the world's about to happen and the guy with the, with the prophecy charts and the calculator out, Right? That's not who we're looking for in order to get help for how we live right now. Well, that's why Peter's instructions are so important. He says, the end is at hand, therefore, live with sanity. Live self-controlled. Here's what I think he's getting at. If you know how the story ends, you're insane not to live with it in mind. If you know how the story ends, you're absolutely crazy to not live as if that is what is coming. He's already said it throughout the letter. Jesus is returning to judge the living and the dead. We will one day stand before him and give an account. This could happen at any time. So Peter says, you know what? Live with self-controlledness. It's not even a word. Let's embrace it. Self-controlledness and with sober-mindedness as you prepare for this day. You see, what happens in this discussion of the end that often gets lost in the shuffle, especially with those who act insane or crazy or irrational, is they miss the fact that the future has broken into the present. They miss the fact that the future kingdom of God has already come when Jesus came as a baby boy. 
and when Jesus lived a perfect life, and when he died a death in our place, the kingdom has already broken in. The future has arrived in some capacity right now. And so Christians, the people of God, the family of God, we get to operate as a sort of trailer for the coming motion picture. Right, so you go to the movie theaters like on time, and then like 45 minutes later, your movie starts, right? That 45 minutes, you're watching all these trailers for what is to come later. Now, there's no doubt that the church, as we function as a trailer, is, is inhabiting a long space here, right? But don't forget the motion picture is eternity. So the church has this opportunity to be this, this little foretaste, this little preview of the coming kingdom of God. The end is at hand. Here's the foretaste of it within the church, and we're simply showing people what life is like in the kingdom. What a privilege, right? What an honor for us to step into that space and have the opportunity to do that. We have the opportunity to provoke people to curiosity about Jesus. That's what a trailer does, right? The trailer tells you just enough where you go, I'm never seeing that movie, or man, I'm all in on that, right? That's going to be better than the movie I'm watching right now. That's what we get to do. We get to provoke people to curiosity about Jesus. God's got to do the rest, but we get to declare and to display and to provoke people about the coming kingdom of God. I love, before we move on to, to the second point of love here, what this clarity of thought is for. I don't know if you caught it, but Peter says that we are to act self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. I think there's a subtle hint here for us that we can't truly be self-controlled. We can't be sober-minded. We can't think with sanity unless our lives are marked by prayer. He says you think this way for the sake of your prayers. Unless we are praying, unless we are regularly communing with the Lord in this way, we will not be able to follow through on this. You see, prayer aligns our will with God's will. It teaches us dependence. It helps us to more fully recognize the rule and reign of King Jesus in our hearts. In prayer, we beg God to move. Something happens when we pray. And if I can be honest this morning, I think we have a lot of room to grow here as a church. And I'm starting with myself. There's one thing that I wish we were doing more as a church plant just a couple months in. It's praying. What would it look like for us to think with self-control and to be sober-minded and for that to express itself in our prayers. Because you see, prayer helps. It, it, prayer is essential to move what we might know in our heads down into our hearts. Right? We might know that Jesus is king. We might know all these facts about him. But prayer helps drop the quarter in the vending machine, so to speak, down from the top into the bottom. And so what would it look like for us to pray? Knowing our sure future in Jesus Christ. How do we inhabit this space right now with prayer and with self-controlledness that gives us a stability? I think that's what he's pushing us toward here. So number one, we think clearly. Number two, we love. Look at verse eight. We love. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Peter says love is to be primary in the life of the family of God. And it's not just to be like a, like a feeling of warm and fuzzies, although affection towards one another is important. Now, he says this is an enduring kind of love. It is ongoing. It is constant. It is persevering. And he says that this ought to be primary since it covers a multitude 
of sins. I think what Peter means by that is this. The church must fight to love one another more than they are annoyed by one another. How's that for a little spiritual something? The church must fight to love one another more than they are annoyed by one another. Now, here's what that means, right? Think back to the family dynamics we introduced at the beginning, right? No one knows you better than your family, especially your nuclear family, right? They know everything about you, the beautiful, shining, glowing things about you, and also the not-so-beautiful things about you, right? Like where you tend to do when you get frustrated, the quick thing that you kind of whipped out all of a sudden without having any thought to it, right? They know everything about you, the beautiful and the not-so-beautiful. And every family member has a choice. Every family member has a choice to either exploit the not-so-beautiful things about you to your harm or to cover them for your good. Right? Every family member has a choice to exploit to your harm or to cover for your good. And the same is true of the church. The same is true of the church. Peter urges us to love one another, not so that we can exploit one another, but so we can cover one another. Right? He's warning us not to let the little petty and trivial stuff well up and become a big issue. He says, don't be so focused on others' faults and what bothers you, and not to let gossip and slander and envy and a critical spirit be rampant within your church body. That stuff is cancerous. He says, don't let that dominate. Instead, he's calling the church to fight to assume the best. He's calling the church to love one another with a covering love, to be proactive, to as we see other people's not-so-beautifulness, not to exploit that, but to cover it. Now, this doesn't mean that we overlook or minimize sin. Okay? It doesn't mean we turn a blind eye to what's going on. But it does mean that we embrace a posture that we recognize that we are all in process, that we are all sinners on our way. And so above all else, Peter says, love one another. Love one another so that you might cover one another. Third is hospitality. Look at verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Very closely related to love, hospitality was essential for the early church especially. Those who were traveling about, think Paul, think his team, they were on their missionary journeys, sharing the gospel, planting churches. They needed places to stay. They needed homes to be in. And the other thing that happens in the early church is that this church planting movement is birthed out of homes. We see over and over again in the book of Acts that the church is being hosted in this person's home or in this person's home. So these home churches were influential in the spread of the gospel across the Roman Empire. Now, hospitality is so important, by the way, it's a qualification to be a pastor in a church. Like, I think we devalue hospitality as like this, oh, yeah, cool, we'll get the table. Like, what we do is we take hospitality and we equate it with entertainment. That's not a biblical view of hospitality doesn't mean entertaining is wrong, right? You can do that when you have people over. That's great. I'm a big fan of being entertained, right? Enjoy letting people come into my home and, and be entertained and, be, and being welcomed. But the problem is reducing it just to that. Think less entertaining and more welcoming the stranger. Think less having a great kind of showcase at the dinner table and more loving the sojourner who doesn't have a home. Right? That's, by the way, at the heart of God towards us. 
Right? We are the strangers, we are the exiles, but we are welcomed into the household of God. So think less entertaining, more welcoming. One of my favorite quotes on hospitality is from John Stott. He says, once the heart is opened by God, the home is open too. There is something intrinsic to this idea of the home and hospitality that cuts right to the center of the good news about Jesus. But as the church is committed to opening their home and their lives to fellow members of the household of faith and to outsiders, Peter says you're to do so without grumbling. See, he knows that the temptation to grow weary, the temptation to grumble, the temptation to, all right, I guess we'll do this again. Right? He knows that is going to be there. This is hard work. He says, don't grumble, press forward. Recognize that we have been welcomed into the household of God. And embrace that posture towards those around us. We have found a home. We have found rest in the household of God. Therefore, you extend that to those around you. That's hospitality. Peter says that ought to mark the church. That we ought to be a people who have open doors for those within this room and those outside of this room. So hospitality is to be a marker of the family of God. Last thing here is service. Look at verses 10 and 11. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified. Come back to that. So he affirms a few things here that are important. First of all, he says that each has received a gift. God has distributed gifts to every single member of his family. Every part of the body has been given a gift, but they are varied gifts that correspond with what Peter calls God's varied grace. One of the things that a healthy church family must fight for is not to unnecessarily elevate and esteem certain gifts above others so that it's kind of this inferiority-superiority complex. Right Now, not all gifts are going to be as public Not all gifts might have the kind of impact you think they might have, but all gifts are valuable. We need the whole body. We need all people recognizing their gifting and serving within that. We all have a role to play. Each has received a gift. Secondly, these gifts, whatever they may be, have a very specific aim and purpose. Did you catch it? As each one has received a gift, use it to serve one another. Use it to serve one another. They are not to be used to build yourself up. They're not to be used to create a platform for yourself so your gifts might be seen and you feel better about what's going on in your own life. No, no, Peter says they are to be used to serve one another. They are by nature others-oriented. They are bestowed by God for ministry in the body, not for self-advancement. We must be oh so careful here, don't we? How quickly we can take the good gifts that God gave us, by the way, not things that we just all of a sudden developed and earned. How can we take the gifts that God has given us and use it for the betterment of those around us? That's the posture that he's calling us to. But lastly here, these gifts are used in accordance to God and as they are strengthened by God. They're used in accordance to God as they are strengthened by God. First of all, he calls us good stewards of God's varied grace. 
It's his grace. It's his gifting that he's calling us to steward. We don't own it, right? Like we don't own whatever gifting we might have. God owns it. We simply steward it for the good of others. And so that's the first place we started. We're stewards of these gifts. Then he says, if you're one who speaks, he doesn't say go out and make up your own stuff. No, he says speak the oracles of God. The Old Testament is what he's referencing there. He's saying speak the very words of God himself. Those of you who serve, don't serve out of your own strength. Serve as you are strengthened by the Lord. You see, gifts will go awry very, very quickly when we lose sight of our relationship between the gifts and the giver. Right? Peter's drawing a tight connection between the gifts and the giver. They are never to be disconnected. And he says that so much is at stake on this, because look at how he ends this section. He says, don't separate the gifts from their giver in order that in everything God may be glorified. Not us, not our gifting, not some particular name or brand we're looking for, so that God might be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The goal of everything is that God may be glorified. He is the one who embodies these characteristics perfectly. When we talk about clear thinking, love, hospitality, service, he says those aren't to glorify ourselves. Those are to glorify him. Those are to glorify God. And Peter's so wrapped up in this, he says that all of eternity will be spent in worship to the glorious triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who is worthy at all because his glory and his dominion will never fade. They go on and on and on into eternity. Notice how he's bringing the future into the present again. He says the end of all things are at hand. You know what's going to happen at the end? God's going to be glorified. You know what we get to do right now? We get to be a trailer of that. We get to be a little bit of a preview of God's glory played out in the family of God right now. So we have to ask ourselves, is this us? Are we thinking clearly? Are we persistent in prayer? Are we loving others above all? Are we opening our homes and our lives to those around us? Are we serving others? Are we seeking a glory for ourselves that only belongs to God alone? In order to embrace these things, you know what's at the root of all of those? Clear thinking, love, service, hospitality. It's an inherent unselfishness, right? The self has been set aside. A constant pursuit of the good of those around us, above and beyond ourselves, is what marks each of these things. And this is so good for us because I know I need and I know that we need the daily reminder that it's really not about us, right? This is not about us. It's for us in a major way, but it's not about us. But we can't possibly embody the ethics of prayer, love, hospitality, service if we are operating from a self-centeredness. You know the quickest way to get out of the way of yourself? Get wrapped up in the glory of God. That's why Peter ends in this way. It is when we lose ourselves in our pursuit of God's glory instead of our own that we find something far more beautiful and valuable. It's a pastor named J.R. Vassar. He wrote a great book called Glory Hunger. Let's let him put a, a little punctuation on this section. He says, Jesus shows us the way to life. His invitation to lose our life, to renounce our obsessive concern with ourselves, 
and to make the glory of God our consuming desire when we, like Jesus, love what is most lovely and value supremely what is supremely valuable and glorify most what is most glorious, we will begin to experience freedom. When we love what is most lovely, which is not ourselves, by the way, when we glorify what is most glorious, we find freedom and we fight for that together as the family of God. So an end-time family is marked by these things all to the glory of God. Secondly, endurance and fiery trials. If you've been with us, you know that Peter has talked about suffering over and over and over again. He just ended that section with amen. It's almost like he can't help himself. He does this glorious doxology and he says, okay, one last thing about suffering, right? You've gotten all this and don't forget one last thing here. He couldn't help himself. Now, these eight verses reiterate much of what Peter has already said on this topic, but he adds a new emphasis that I think is important for this conversation of living together in light of the end. He seems to be drawing the church's attention to endurance, endurance in the face of suffering, persecution, and difficulties. Now, everybody wants endurance and suffering, don't they? Like, everybody wants that. No one's like, no, I just kind of want to learn how to quit and suffering. Everybody wants endurance. Christian, not everybody wants the key. And I think that Peter is going to ring some of the bells that speak to what it means to endure through suffering. So let's look back at verse 12. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He starts by setting the expectation. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when suffering, when persecution, when trials and hardships come. They are normal in the Christian life. And I think he's already said why throughout this letter. They're exiles, they're strangers, they're sojourners to the world around them. The world will view their new allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom as strange. They will suffer for that. Just as the world rejected Jesus, so too they will reject you. But our response to that is so critical. Peter's drawing our attention to our response when those things happen. Because what can happen is if we become surprised when suffering and hardships come, it's not automatic, but it is so quick to move from surprise to questioning. If we are taken aback and say, oh, why is this happening? I don't deserve this, right? What's the next step of that? God must not really have what's best for me here. God must not really love me if I'm going through this particular trial, this particular persecution. He must not have what's best for me. See, we can quickly move from questioning his plan and his sovereignty when we become surprised in our suffering. Which, by the way, that's why Peter reminds them of their status. Did you catch that? Before he said that, he said, Beloved, you who are loved by God, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. Then he uses this imagery of fire. Okay, it's an intense imagery. By the way, most of the imageries in the scriptures for like suffering and sanctification and growth are all really intense. Like, you ever thought about the vine and the vine dresser? Like, have you ever seen a bush after it's been clipped? It looks like a war just went on, right? But God says that's for your good. Here it's fire, right? Fire here. It's a fiery trial. That phrase is one word in the Greek, purosis. Sounds an awful lot like purifying, doesn't it? That's what fire does, purosis. We also get the idea of a pyromaniac from that word, right? 
if you've been around a pyromaniac, you're, you're, you know the feeling. It's uncomfortable, right? This obsessive, compulsive desire to set things on fire. If you teach middle schoolers, you're around that all day, right? But this word purosis means a refiner's fire, a fire that purifies and cleanses, a fire into which you put the metal and it comes out pure. This is exactly why Peter says, by the way, that these trials are here to test you. He's already brought up this imagery before, back in chapter 1. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. And look what he says. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's the idea. When the metal goes into the fire, only what is pure survives. All of the dross and the impurities that may have developed over time are burned up. The fire separates the pure from the impure. If I could maybe make this an analogy for Florida, right? We all like busted open our fireplaces this week because it hit 40 degrees. I know I did, happily. Right? To make a good fire, you've got to have some brush or some tinder to get it going. You need a log that will burn nice and long, but also not too fast, and, and it will, will catch fire quickly. But then if you're in an indoor fireplace, you need, like, the metal grate that holds it all together, right? So the tinder burns right away. The logs take some time. But you know what remains afterward? That metal grate's not going anywhere, unless you've got a problem in your fireplace. You should look at that if it's gone, right? The same is true of our faith, though. When we go through fiery trials, suffering, difficulties, persecution, whatever it might be, it's meant to refine and purify us because it quickly strips away the brush, right? It quickly burns up whatever that stuff is that really doesn't matter that we're focused on. Even those bigger logs that are burning, you know what? Those eventually are going to go away. The fire reveals to us the things that are really important and it purifies us. It refines us so that when we come out on the other end, it's actually for our good. There's an old preacher's illustration, which is codenamed for this might, may or may not be true, but it works, okay? Uh, when you used to ask a silversmith when they knew that their work was done, like if you asked a silversmith back in the day when this was real popular and was necessary for economies, like how do you know that that silver is done in the fire? He would say, well, when I take it out and I can see my face in it. Right? When I take it out and I can see my reflection. That's a beautiful analogy to what God does to us with the fiery trials. Right? We go through the fire. He allows us to go in there until he can see his own reflection in us. That's what sanctification is. Right? It's becoming more and more like Jesus. And so the work is done when we look like Jesus. You know what's necessary for that? Fire. Purity. That's the imagery here. Fiery trials will come, and it is forming Christ in us. So therefore, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when they come. They're actually for your good. Now, as we close, he draws our attention to three things that deal with this endurance and suffering. The first thing he says to do is to rejoice. He says to rejoice. Look at verses 13 and 14. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. How can we possibly rejoice in the fiery trial? 
Well, when we suffer for following Jesus, there is this unique union with Christ that is felt. Suffering maybe makes us, us feel this more keenly than anything else in our lives. He says that when we suffer, when you are slandered, when you are persecuted, the very spirit of God rests on you. Now, it doesn't mean that it rests on you any less when you're not in seasons of fire, but the fire brings it out. Right? We can identify with the sufferings of Jesus. It's preparing us for the glory that's ahead. Talk about that trailer language again. The suffering now prepares us for what is coming in its glory. He says that you are actually blessed when you suffer because it's preparing your heart and your mind and your life for what is to come. So don't be surprised and rejoice. Secondly, he says, obey. 15 through 18. I'm just going to read 15 for a minute. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? If the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Peter knows how great the temptation will be to sin in the face of suffering. We can categorize these as like sins of escape, right? I'm guessing you know what I'm talking about. Like when you're suffering, when trials come, it's really easy to talk your way into, well, you know, I don't really need to do this. After all, I'm suffering, right? I don't really need to go to church. I don't really need to show up at city group. I don't really need to read my Bible. I don't really need to pray. I just kind of need to wallow in some self-pity right now. How quickly do we move there in suffering? Peter says, don't do that. Now, he starts with some intense sins like murder and, and stealing. But then he uses these phrase, this phrase, uh, evildoer or meddler. That just means general, like, don't sin. He's saying, I know you're not a murderer, but are you an evildoer? Like, are you a meddler? Are you just kind of like thinking about sinning? He says, don't do it. Stay on guard. Suffering will be, it will be tempting in those seasons. Don't play the victim card when you're suffering due to your own foolishness. That's what he's saying here. But when you're in the midst of the fire, press on, press on. We need to stay engaged. Spurgeon says this, an ounce of sin will hurt you far more than 10 million tons of suffering. Is that our mindset? An ounce of sin will hurt you 10 million tons will hurt you far more than 10 million tons of suffering. That's what he's talking about with judgment in the household of God. Are we caring for our own soul in the midst of that? And then lastly in trust, we'll close with this, a fitting conclusion to Peter's words on suffering. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls. Peter says we must give ourselves over to a faithful creator. But I think the question we have to ask is why? Like that word in trust, it gets down to the level of our trust. How can we trust God to be a faithful creator? If the cancer continues, if this persecution keeps on coming, if the difficulties of this life keep coming at me, how do I know he's a faithful creator? How can I entrust myself to him? Well, I think the message of the gospel answers this in a resounding way. Because the gospel is this. God loves you so much, even though we have all turned away from him, that he was willing to take on our suffering himself. He put himself on the hook 
for human suffering. Christianity is the only religion that I know of where God suffers. So when Peter says, entrust yourself to a faithful creator, how do we know he's faithful? Because he loved us enough to take on our own suffering. He didn't stay disengaged. He's not uninvolved. He's not aloof in the clouds. No, he came and he died for us. Isaiah calls him a man of sorrows. In fact, you want to know what it looks like to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good? Luke 23 records Jesus on the cross. You might remember the last words he cries out. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You know what that word commit is? It's the exact same as entrust. See, Jesus has died in our place, and he has left an example for us of how to entrust our souls to a faithful creator. Jesus, on the moment he is suffering for the sins of the world, says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to entrust my soul to a faithful creator while doing good. He died so that we might actually be able to do that, by the way. He died so that we might be empowered and we might be left an example for how to do this. Listen, God is faithful to keep us to the end. So therefore, we entrust. We press on with doing good because this is a foretaste of the coming glories of the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, as we live with the end in mind right now, we declare and we display to the world that is in desperate need of redemption, that the kingdom of God has come, that Jesus has died to set us right with God. So as we consider the end of all things, let's live together as the end time family of God. Let's support one another as we endure the fiery trials so that in the words of Peter, in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.